Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today we are talking about the things that mentally strong women don't do. And I wanted to do this episode because I think my guest will really help you if you're in that cycle of trying to stop drinking, going back to it, and then trying to stop again. My guest is Amy Morin. She's a psychotherapist, a mental strength trainer, and the award-winning host of the Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin podcast. She's an international best-selling author. Her books, including 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do and 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, have been translated into more than 40 languages and sold more than 1 million copies. The Guardian dubbed her the self-help guru of the moment. Forbes calls her a thought leadership star. And People Says Her Book is one of the top 20 must-read books of all time. Her TEDx talk, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, is one of the most viewed talks of all time. 
And I'm really honored to have her on. She also lives on a sailboat in the Florida Keys. So Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I thank you for responding when I reached out to you. I had seen your books, I watched your TEDx talk, and I felt like all the pieces that you're bringing together would really help the women listening to this. Awesome. Well, I'm thrilled that you did reach out and happy to share whatever you think will be most helpful to your audience. Awesome. Will you tell us a little bit about you and your story and how you came to this work? Absolutely. So I was a therapist in rural Maine thinking I was going to work in an office for most of my career and happy to do therapy based on what I learned in college. But one of the things that I learned pretty early on was, well, in college, I was taught to build on people's strengths. If they're doing something well, tell them to keep doing that thing because we want to be strengths based. But it occurred to me, like if I went to see a physical trainer and they told me to run on the treadmill, that'd be great. But what if they told me not to eat jelly donuts? Well, then I'd be really mad that they didn't tell me and point out like the counterproductive thing that I was doing that was really undoing all the work I was doing while I was at the gym. So I felt like, oh, that's kind of the same for therapy. If I don't point out the problem and that one habit, maybe that's counterproductive, all of your good work kind of falls by the wayside. And about a year into my work as a therapist, my mom passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. She had a brain aneurysm. I was 23 at the time. And I just remember thinking like, oh, you know, but it just I hadn't imagined a life without my mom in it at such a young age. And it was my big first big like real struggle with grief. And I was thinking, all right, now it's not just about teaching other people how to be mentally strong, but gosh, I have to start putting all of these things into place in my own life. And then when I was 26, it was three years to the day exactly that my mom died. My 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And suddenly I'm a widow. I don't have my mom. And I'm supposed to be a therapist who helps other people deal with their problems. And I just remember thinking, like, what do I do now? How do I do this? But I kind of felt like I didn't have too much of a choice because my husband was the primary breadwinner. Therapists don't make a ton of money. And I didn't want to lose my house. So I had to figure out how do I keep earning money, even though I'm struggling. And so one of the things I did was I started writing articles. You can only work as a therapist so many hours a week, but I could write articles in the evenings and the weekends and make a little bit of extra money to pay the bills. And a few years later, I was like, it took forever to kind of figure out what, which way is up and which way is down. My heart was broken. And at a time when most of my friends were getting remarried and they were having kids, I'm a widow. It was the strangest, darkest time of my life. And it took years to really dig myself out of it, I think, and to work through the grief. I didn't want to go around the pain. I knew I had to go through it. But I found love again. I got remarried. I got a new job. Life was looking pretty good for a moment. But then my father-in-law got diagnosed with cancer. And the doctor said it was terminal. They gave him a pretty poor prognosis. And I just remember thinking, like, this isn't fair. Like, life is finally getting better, and now I'm going to lose somebody else again. But I knew that feeling sorry for myself was not going to be helpful. So I wrote a list of what mentally strong people don't do. It was meant to just be a letter for myself during one of the darkest times of my life. But I found it helpful to say, just don't do these counterproductive things. So I thought maybe somebody else will appreciate the list. So I put it on the internet and stepped away from the computer thinking like five people would read it, but 50 million people read that list. And before I knew it, one of them was a literary agent who said, you should write a book. But I said, you know, I'm a therapist. I don't really share my story. And there's a backstory to this. What went on the internet was kind of pretty much just a list without any context to it. So I was like, oh, I don't know. 
But uh, she said, you know, you don't have to tell your story, but it might be more powerful if you did. So within a year, the book came out and uh, and I shared the backstory that I wrote the list, not because I'd mastered it, but because I struggled with all of the things that were on it. Well, and of course you did. I mean, I can't imagine going through that kind of loss so early and so quickly together. I'm really sorry. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I lost my dad to cancer when I was 29. And I know that was incredibly hard for me. And I was drinking through the entire thing. Um, I was already drinking, you know, every night, but I definitely ramped it up when that happened. And I have to say, it did me no favors. Um, I would get so upset, feel so much self pity, so sorry for myself. And then sometimes not even remember the conversations I had in the morning. And it really didn't help me heal in any way. After I quit drinking, my best friend passed away of uh, brain cancer. And it was an entirely different experience. I was so much more able to be there for her, to be helpful, to stay emotionally grounded, to take care of myself. And I think that what you have, I've, I've obviously, I've, I've read your book, I've followed your work, I love your podcast, is going to help people no matter what they're dealing with. Yeah, I'm sorry about your losses too. And I think the fact that we can both share these losses, as I'm sure most of your listeners can relate to, grief is part of life. Life is going to throw us curveballs all the time. And I don't think we should like build mental strength just to be ready for like the, the next tragedy to happen because that would be a pretty rough way to live life because mental strength can help us in the good times too. But to know how do you get through the tough times when they do come around without reaching for those unhealthy coping strategies or the coping skills that maybe backfire in the end. And there's this thing that happens when we're experiencing all this inner turmoil and all this inner pain. Sometimes there's that tendency to kind of make the outside world match so we're like reaching for stuff, doing stuff like these quick fixes that will help in the moment, whether it's drinking or online shopping when you don't have the money and it makes you feel better like for a quick second, but then it creates bigger problems in the long term and ultimately makes us feel worse. Well, so tell us what mentally strong women don't do or what people are going through a really dark time. What are the areas of their lives and behavior they should look at? So, well, if we started with the my first book, which is The 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, I would say feeling sorry for yourself is probably number, is number one on the list because that's where I was uh, at that moment in time when I wrote the list. But also something I would see in my therapy office. People would be like, Amy, I'm ready to change my life. And I'm like, okay. But then they'd be like, next week, they just want to come in and tell me like all the bad things that happened in the past seven days. And they didn't really want to make any change. Instead, they kind of just wanted reinforcement that it's okay to stay stuck right mm -hmm. where they are. And I know that grief is a really painful thing and it's difficult to go through. So our tendency is to try to like go around or we sometimes dig in our heels and think, my life's so bad, I shouldn't have to deal with it. We just want to vent to other people rather than take action. So it's about finding that healthy sadness without crossing the line into self-pity. Yeah. And so how do you do that? I mean, so for example, for you, you went through legitimate, incredibly difficult tragedies that impacted you emotionally, financially, um, every way. Like, how do you 
not feel sorry for yourself when you see the world going on around you with people who haven't experienced this? So I think a couple of things. So we sometimes talk about emotions as if they're all positive or negative. People will be like, well, excitement's a positive emotion and sadness is a negative emotion, but that's not true. Any emotion has the power to be helpful or hurtful at any given time. If somebody walked up to you with a get rich quick scheme, your excitement might make it so that you say yes and you forget that it's actually a bad idea. Or your sadness helps you honor something that you lost to a point. But there may be times where you're so sad you don't get out of bed for three weeks. That's when it crosses the line into being unhelpful. So I think it's important to take a look at our emotions and say, is this helpful to me in the long run? Or am I allowing this emotion to really take hold to the point that it's affecting my ability to function? and to make healthy choices for myself. And really when we cross over into self-pity, it's when we, we don't wanna take any action at all ever. So it's sort of like when we're looking more for the reasons about why we shouldn't have to do anything rather than actually taking the action. So when we're like, oh, look, there's eight bad things that happened today. And those eight bad things may have happened, but maybe 10 good things also happened mm -hmm. today. And so when we indulge in self-pity, we forget to, we like screen out anything positive. We only look for the negative. And you've probably met somebody who kind of thrives on that. Like, oh, guess what happened to me today? And they only want to tell about the horrible, dramatic things that happen because they get something out of just repeating like the horror stories of the day, as opposed to acknowledging, well, you know, some good things happen too. So and I've seen what happens as a therapist when people stay stuck in that cycle of self-pity, they just become bitter and angry and never really work through the pain. So that thing that happened, it might be 20 years later, but that thing that happened is still like so painful that they can't really work on it. So for me, it was about knowing, yeah, this is sad and I miss my mom and I miss my husband and it felt really unfair that that's the situation I was in in my 20s. But on the other hand, I was like, you know, but I also have skills, I have resources. I have other friends and family who are very kind people. I have some things I can do. And it was also about acknowledging the, the good and the bad. So what should people do? They don't feel sorry for themselves. Is it look for the good, appreciate the resources they have in their life, sort of reclaim their power? So a couple of things. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I'm laying on the couch in a really dark place. And I think, yeah, well, I'm grateful for air and water and and it doesn't really feel genuine and so if stirring up gratitude at that moment feels more like a chore you don't have to do it when life is bad you can acknowledge yes things are bad and we're not talking about toxic positivity where you minimize your pain you can acknowledge this is really painful and this is really hard and this is what i'm going to do today and it might be you smile at somebody, you hold the door for somebody but just acknowledging that there's something that you can do to make the world a little bit better in that moment, maybe to make your life a little better, to cheer somebody else up. It just empowers you to know that even on your darkest days, you can make a difference in the world. And that's not to say you have to go out and try to change the whole world when you're having a bad day, but to know that, that you matter and that there's still a purpose for you to be here. That makes a lot of sense. So stop feeling sorry for yourself, avoid self-pity. What else? Second one on that list of that book is that they don't give away their power. And that's probably the most popular one people want to ask me about. And it's really about knowing that you're in charge of how you think, how you feel, and how you behave. But so often we want to blame other people, like my coworker wastes my time. My boss makes me feel bad about myself. My, my mother-in-law makes me go to her house for dinner on Sundays. 
whatever it is, we act as though somebody's forcing us to do certain things. And empowering ourselves can just be about changing the language and recognizing, I don't have to feel bad. I could choose to feel bad, but I don't have to. Or this person isn't forcing me. Even if your boss says you have to work late, well, you don't have to. There'd be a consequence maybe if you don't, but it's up to you to make that choice. So taking back your power can just be shifting your language and recognizing I'm in control of how I think, how I feel, and how I behave today. I get to decide how to spend my time and who to spend it with. I can set healthy boundaries with people. I can uh, make choices that would say, you know, maybe it's not the popular choice, but I'm not going to do that thing, or I'm going to go home, or I'm going to uh, take my own car so I can leave when I want. Whatever it is, there's so many things we can do all day, every day, and not blame other people for uh, having control over us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. Yeah, and I think that I sort of identify as this overachieving people pleaser. At least that's what I was doing when when I was drinking and I'm, I'm working on boundaries and being able to do that without worrying about how the other person is going to react. But I think that's one of the hardest things to do, right? Because obviously, 
you don't have to go to dinner at your in-laws or serve alcohol to people coming over for a dinner party or drive your kids everywhere. So you are totally burnt out at the end of the day. But we have this like internal critic that we've been conditioned to be like, but I should, but it's not okay. Right. How do you, how do you move past that? So I think it's a couple things. Sometimes it's about still doing that thing. Maybe you don't feel like driving your kids all over the place, but you decide I'm going to do this anyway. So just then recognizing that this is my choice and I'm doing it because it's choice, not because mm-hmm. I have to. Sometimes just that shift in your mindset makes a big difference. Or, you know, my friend invited me somewhere. I don't really want to go, but she could use a friend to go with her to this thing. So I'm going to go anyway. Just recognizing that, like, okay, I'm choosing to be a good friend. That's why I'm going. Not I'm going because I have to go. And that language shift makes a big difference. And then sometimes it is about not just changing how we think about the situation, but it's actually changing the situation itself. So give yourself permission to say, no, thank you. Or ask yourself, like, what's the worst that would happen if I invite people over and I don't serve alcohol? Like, are they going to judge me? Are they going to be upset? Are they going to be mad? Maybe. But like, what's so bad about that Mm -hmm. thing? And just kind of walking, um, taking the scenario through all the way to the end. So sometimes they're like, oh, I have to do this thing. Well, what would happen if I didn't? Maybe they'd be upset. Okay, well, what if they were upset if I declined their invitation? You know, the sun would still rise tomorrow and probably still set tomorrow night. It's not the end of the world. But if we walk it all the way through to the end of the scenario, sometimes that reminds us of that. Like, okay, people can be upset. People can be angry. They can be frustrated. But often the things we're imagining don't happen anyway. How many times do we say yes to something because we think the other person will be offended if we say no? But then in reality, the other person maybe was just asking to be polite too. So you don't, we're thinking we're going to make them happy. They think they're inviting us to make us happy. So many strange situations we get ourselves in. And I've been guilty of it as well. Just because we don't speak up, we don't say what we want, we don't set boundaries. And so it takes practice to be able to say no sometimes, or it takes practice to be able to say, actually, I'm going to take my own car so I can leave when I want, um, but I'll go with you. Those little things that we do sometimes can make a huge difference in taking back our power. And in your therapy practice, is that something you work through with people? Yeah, definitely. And sometimes it's a matter of just helping people like buy themselves some time. So if you're a yes person, just figuring out what's a script. So when somebody calls and asks you, hey, do you want to do this or can you do this for me? We might develop a script that's as simple as, I'm not sure yet. I'll check my calendar and get back to you. And then so that people don't automatically say yes to everything. And sometimes that helps. And then they can have a 10 minute break where they check their calendar or just give themselves a few minutes to think, do I really want to do this? And then get back to the person and say, hey, thanks for the invitation, but I'm not able to do that. And you don't always have to have an excuse or a reason why said you can just use that. And that often is much more powerful than than we might imagine that other people are like, oh, okay, thanks for letting me know. And then we move on with our day. But in our heads, sometimes we build that up. So a lot of what we do in the therapy office is figuring that out or helping people figure out how do you say no and stick to it. If you have somebody in your life where you say no and the other person's all, oh, but come on, you know, you should, or, you know, you want to, or you're boring or whatever it is that they try to use against us, then how do you follow up with that and still stick to a no? Or if somebody tries to guilt you into something, or maybe it's even a business opportunity where somebody says, I'm not going to pay you for this, but I'd love to have you come do this thing for exposure and it'll be really good for you. And 
and you say no and they're still trying to like convince you that it's a good idea how do you say no and stick to it so having a few sample scripts can go a long way toward helping us yeah and do you have those scripts in your book i have some in my so i have a workbook now which is the latest thing i came out with it's the 13 things mentally strong people don't do workbook because I was getting a lot of questions like that. In my original book, I was talking more about setting boundaries and saying no. And then I had a lot of people that are like, and exactly how do you do that? Or what are the exact words I could use? So I came out with a workbook earlier this year to help people really get the exact scripts to use or the ideas of how you can say no and stick to Yeah, them. I find that really helpful. I know I have sort of a a three-part way that women, can, people pleasers can say no in terms of like different ways you can you can do that. I think especially scripts are helpful when you're sort of deer in the headlights confronted with what do I do at this moment? That's just it. We know that when our emotions go up, our logic goes down. So when somebody asks you something and you have that deer in the headlight moment, your anxiety is probably skyrocketed so high that it's hard to think clearly. And you're like, uh, 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 I don't know, or maybe, or that we say something like, our, we know our answer is no, but maybe we don't really want to say no. So we say like, we lead them on to it's a maybe, or I'll have to think about it, or we turn it into a joke or something like that. If you have a script ready to go, then you know, yeah, when I when my anxiety skyrockets, this is exactly what I'm going to say. And it takes a lot of the, the pressure off of us. In that yeah. Moment. And for anyone listening to this, another script that really helps is having worked out in advance exactly what you're going to say to someone if you're going out to dinner with them or spending the week with them about not drinking, how much you want to reveal, how much you want it to be a big deal, whether you're telling them you're taking a break for 30 days, 100 days, because you feel better, whatever it is, just knowing that can help you feel more confident when you deliver it. Absolutely. Because that's another one that people find they stumble over their words, they take it in into um, a place in their head where they're like, Oh, my gosh, did I say the right thing? Or I don't know what to say and they get tripped up. And so uh, absolutely. I love that that you have those scripts. Yeah, yeah. And so okay, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop giving away your power because you're able to set your own boundaries. And what's next? So another one in there that you, you just mentioned is, is not trying to please oh, okay. everyone. And so it, it's folded into the other ones a little bit too, but we, there's so much interesting things about people pleasers. So we know that uh, a people pleaser will try to match the other person that they're with right down to like, if there's a bowl of M&Ms on the table, they will, and the other person's eating M&Ms, even if the people pleasers on a diet, they will match the other person's M&M consumption, M&M for M&M, right? And so it's important to recognize because we want to make them happy. We don't want them to feel uncomfortable that they're still eating and we're not or that they're doing something we don't want to do. So I would imagine that really comes into play when it comes to alcohol too, that we want to match what other people are doing. We don't want them to be offended or to feel bad about their behavior. So we're like, oh, if you're doing this, maybe I should do it too because it will make you feel more comfortable. And so a big part of it is just recognizing that It's not our job to make other people happy. In fact, no matter how hard you try to make somebody happy, chances are you aren't going to do it, that we can let other people take responsibility for themselves and we'll work on focusing on responsibility for ourselves. It's tough to do. I have been a people pleaser for a lot of my life. So now saying no and speaking up and saying, actually, I don't like that, or here's what I'd really like to do, takes a lot of work and practice as well. No, it absolutely does. And 
I mean, I think the fear that's under that is that you're going to be rejected, right? People aren't going to want to hang out with you or they'll like you less if you don't do that. Exactly. And then there's a, I have a chapter in my women's book specifically about perfectionism because these things often go hand in hand that we grow up thinking if I can just be this certain way, then people are going to like me. I will make them happy. Maybe your parents praised you because you were got an A on the test and you got praised when you scored a goal in the game. So we think, okay, if I can just keep performing and achieving and doing great things, then somehow I'll please everybody in my life. But like, it's this constant cycle where we never feel quite good enough. And so how do you shift that? Is it trying to focus more internally on your own goals? Is it something else? So one thing can just be to try to figure out like, what are you trying to gain by being a perfectionist? Are you trying to get more admiration, achievement? Do you feel like you'll finally feel good about yourself when you cross a certain finish line? And then ask yourself, like, what's it also costing you? I know perfectionists who will spend three hours on a simple email because they can't quite figure out how to word something. Or they'll say, you know, I spend all this time at home working on work stuff and people don't know I'm, I'm working 80 hours a week, but really that's what I'm doing to try to, to try to get ahead or to try to feel like I'm competent or to look competent at work to other people. And it's costing a lot of people their health, their time with family, their relationships are suffering. So just knowing, well, what is it costing me? And sometimes with the perfectionist in my therapy office, we'll actually make a mistake on purpose. So it might be, let's send an email with a typo in it on purpose just to see what happens. Or let's just decide, okay, this report is worth an hour of my time. And that's all you're going to give yourself. And you could better be done at an hour and then you get send it in and get it off your off your plate. And when people can do that, like it's super anxiety provoking for a long time. But when people do that regularly, they see that, yeah, maybe that like extra two hours I spend rehashing an email in my mind over and over again doesn't actually get me to where I want to be or what I thought I was doing. I thought what I was doing was helpful, but it's actually holding me back. In yeah, some way. no, that's interesting because especially in the beginning, when you're stopping drinking, you really need to lower the bar, your body feels physically very, very tired. And you need to stay away from overwhelm. And that's scary for a lot of women, if they're high achieving at work, and they've got a lot going on, or they're people pleasers. And so it's actually an exercise in doing less and doing things not as perfectly as you want to do it in order to give yourself time to heal. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. 
So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H dot com and use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings, or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. And, you know, and giving up drinking is another one of those perfect, perfect, I just use the word perfect, perfect examples of how we sometimes have that all or nothing attitude. Like I'm either going to be a hundred percent on track or I've a hundred percent failed. And what, and strangely, people who are perfectionists also tend to self-sabotage. So I had a woman in my therapy office who was trying to lose weight, trying to get healthy. And she'd be like, you know, I have like three really good weeks in a row and I'm doing well. And then the fourth week, I'm like ordering pizza all the time and I'm doing all of these things. Like, what's going on? Well, she had these certain goals. And when she'd get three quarters of the way to her goal, it was like this anxiety had built to the point that she was really struggling because she'd be like, oh, I don't know if I can hold this together much longer. So it's like she would sabotage herself just to get rid of that tension Mm -hmm. and anxiety because She'd be like, I don't know if I can be perfect. So then the anxiety would build to the point where she would then blow it just to say, well, I messed up again. But she didn't know. None of this was conscious that she was doing it. But that's actually a really common thing that happens with perfectionists. We get three quarters of the way to our goal. And then we're anxious about whether we can actually do it. And then we kind of blow it on purpose. Is it an upper limit problem? Like scared of what will happen if you actually break through or something else? I think with perfectionists, it's often the fear that it's not necessarily the fear of of failing or the fear of success. It's more like the fear of what if I do my very best and it's still not quite good enough. 
And I think that's the deep rooted fear that, that we often have is like, oh, but if I do something else, so let's say a, a college student who's a perfectionist has an exam on Friday, they might not study and then it's Thursday night and they suddenly are like, eh, because they like, what if I study all week and then I still don't do well on the test? Well, I'd rather not study at all than, and then if I fail, it's not necessarily my yeah, fault. Yeah, it's like self-protection where you're like, well, I didn't do well because I didn't study, not because I'm inherently not good enough. Exactly. So we see that happen often with perfectionists where they end up sabotaging themselves in some strange ways. And it seems like counterintuitive. Like you think, no, a perfectionist doesn't do that. They study all week. But no, sometimes they don't. They do these other things just to kind of blow it on purpose. That's really interesting. I remember, um, so I was sort of a daily drinker, but I drank before every job interview and before business trip. And you, when I was young, um, like really young, like 23, I was, you know, in this oversized suit and going up to meetings at American Express in New York from DC with these big conference rooms. I felt so unqualified and I would drink the night before. So I was so hungover in the morning that all I could concentrate on was trying not to throw up. And that's ridiculous, but was totally true. That's a prime example, too, of saying, you know, like, I'm just going to kind of take the pressure off in a very strange, counterintuitive way. But I think if we all looked at our lives, there are examples of times when we've done just that, because we don't want to think I'm incompetent. We want to blame some sort of external force on why we struggle. Yeah, which is ridiculous, right? I'm thinking like, okay, I'm trying to do this really hard thing. Let me just put a ball and chain around my ankle to make it harder. Right, right. But it's it's strange. But I guarantee if we all looked at our lives with a magnifying glass, we would find times where we've done. No, that's really interesting. And I wonder, I just want to get your take on this as a therapist, something that I see women do a lot is they have legitimate resentments or grievances or something that they need to address in their life that is going to cause conflict or uncomfortable situations. And they drink to stuff that down. And then they wake up and blame themselves, like, so that they don't have to engage with something that will make someone else uncomfortable. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to kind of the people pleasing piece of like, oh, what can I do to avoid this, this thing? And I know there's something I, I should do. And there's a part of me that wants to do it, but it's hard to do. So what can I do to kind of sabotage it? That's a, another great example of how we sometimes sabotage ourselves mm-hmm. in weird ways. And I've heard you talk about giving up at the first failure. Is that related to perfectionism or separate? It can certainly be related. So some people are like, all right, if I fail once, it means I am a failure. So there's no use in trying again. And it goes back to the whole growth mindset of we can learn from failure, we can bounce back from it, and we can get better from it. But one of the strange thing that we never do in society is really talk much mm-hmm. about failure. Occasionally, you'll see it on you know Instagram where somebody's bragging about they failed 30 years ago, but we only see them do that once they get to be super successful. It's much harder to talk about something you failed at last week and you have no proof that you're going to do better at it next time you try or there's no evidence that you're eventually going to be successful. And so because of that, we often hide our failure. We put a lot of energy into trying to make sure nobody knows about it. It's embarrassing. 
or we come up with excuses for it. Like, well, they didn't hire me because um, the boss probably hired their cousin. Or we think that it's, you know, so far out of our control that there's no use in trying again because we're just going to fail. But to know that failure is part of any process so that we know that nobody's like, hey, I'm going to lose 50 pounds and then they stay on track and they lose 50 pounds and the whole thing was easy and they don't ever have a bad day. Like, no, we know that that's part of the process. Having bad days and there's a whole chapter about making mistakes too, because those go hand in hand. We do make mistakes, but we don't have to dwell on them or think that a mistake means that we can't succeed or that if we make a mistake that somehow we're a bad person. It's part of the process is making mistakes. And then how do you recover from that mistake? Or if you fail, how do you then move forward after the failure? And that's what really makes you. Yeah, I, that's really interesting. And and I can't remember a time I'm thinking back when someone shares right after a failure, except in some of these private groups, like both not drinking groups where someone will come back and be like, okay, day one again. I did X, Y, Z, but also I'm in a sort of online business entrepreneur group and people will talk about, I built this whole product and I launched it and crickets, you know, I had one person buy it or nobody showed up. So maybe it's when you're with people who have a similar goal, you feel safer versus the entire universe of your aunt and your former boss. Yeah, I think that's very a very true statement. You know, if you fail at something at work or at business and your grandmother hears about it, she may be like, give you this really long lecture or you might think she's going to judge you for being stupid because you didn't know how to create a product and sell it. But if you can talk to like-minded people, I guess there is some faith that perhaps they'll know what that's yeah. like to to uh, make a mistake or fall off the Or have sometimes. some advice to help you through it. Like they empathy and know it's hard. Right. And that's why I always talk to people too about like support groups and things like that, where you can get together with people who truly understand. Because so often, you know, people want to give us advice about everything from your love life to your business life to your health. And and they don't know because they've never been there. So somebody with depression will be like, well, my cousin told me I should drink more water. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're like, well, if if your cousin had depression and she said, hey, this is what works for me, that's one thing. Then sometimes we listen, but we don't really like unsolicited advice, especially when it's from people who haven't been in the trenches. Yeah, themselves. they don't get it. They haven't been there. They have no idea what it feels like. Right. I also saw you write about mentally tough people being okay with accepting responsibility. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So that goes back to the idea of whether we're making an excuse or we have an explanation. And so often, like, even if we make a mistake, we don't really want to admit that it was because we didn't have the information. We just want to be like, I'm going to blame something else. Like my boss didn't tell me what to do, or I didn't have the resources I needed. And, but when we make an excuse, like you can't really do better next time. So accepting responsibility can be like, all right, here's my part. Now, you don't want to accept too much responsibility either, because I think there is the danger of that. On the other end of the spectrum, there are times where we think, oh, this is all my fault. But it's not. Somebody else might bear some responsibility, too. So it's about recognizing that there's some middle ground to be had. Accept your share of the piece of the puzzle without blaming yourself too much, but also recognize when you're tempted to just make excuses and blame other people for things, too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned perfectionism shows up in women. Are there other things that you see women in particular struggle with that 
maybe men don't? One a big one is the comparison mm. trap. So, and there's research on this. If, if I were to open up Instagram and I see all of these idyllic looking women, I'm much more likely to think, oh, I could never be like that, right? And I feel bad about myself. If, however, a man opens up Instagram and he's on some men's health site and he looks at all these like big muscular men and he thinks they, are, they look amazing, a man is more likely to think, I could totally do that if I just went to the gym, right? And for women, I think we tend to, when we look at people who have things that we want, we're much more likely to think it's because she's amazing and I'm not, rather than she has information that I could learn from, or she has skills or resources or something that, um, that by following her, I could, I could gain. Instead, we think either people are better or below us, or that somehow that they have something that we'll never have. So in the women's book, I talk a lot about that, the comparison trap and the one of the best strategies is to just look at other people as an opinion holder rather than your competition so if you look at somebody who has what looks like an amazing life instead of think, thinking they're better than i am catch yourself and think perhaps this person has knowledge skills or resources that i could mm -hmm. learn from and studies show when we make that slight shift in the way that we think about it we don't feel so bad we feel more inspired rather than feel bad and beat ourselves up for not having those. Things. Yeah, I remember when I was wanting to leave corporate and admired some women entrepreneurs, I had a sign on my vanity that said, if she can do it, so can I. And that actually helped me make that move. I love that. That's a great idea. So question for you, why do you think men, you know, in the studies have a different approach? Is it something that we've been conditioned to believe or do? I have this joke that my husband, who is a lovely man, um, also a white man, <laughs> who I am always like, God grant me the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> do you think it's something that you've just been taught? Right, right. Well, you know, one of the main reasons I do, one of the main reasons I wrote the women's book was there's a study where they asked five-year-old kids, point to somebody who's brilliant. And they showed him a whole bunch of pictures of men and a whole bunch of pictures of women. Almost all the little five-year-old girls would point to a woman that they picked out and they would say, oh, that woman looks brilliant. And then the, the little boys would almost every single time point to a man who they thought looked brilliant. Well, then they did the study again at the age of seven. And almost all the little girls and all the little boys all pointed to men and they didn't pick out women. And you think, well, what happens between the ages of five and seven that would make these little girls think it's only men who are brilliant? Well, we start school. And what happens when we start school? We learn about astronauts and presidents and famous scientists who are predominantly men. So I think it gets ingrained in us from a very young age sometimes that, that we're not as good. And that kind of carries over. It's not only like I'm not as good as some of the men in my life, but maybe I'm not as good as some of these other women who were able to break through and do some really cool things. And I think it's subtle and it happens early on. And we know too that, you know, teachers will praise boys for getting A's and girls be like, well, you tried hard. That's good. And girls get praised a lot more for being pretty than they do for or being smart. For being nice. For, um, right, right. Exactly. That you're supposed to be the kind one and teachers excuse boys bad behavior much more than they do a, a little girl who acts up, those sorts of things. So I think part of it is is the way that we're socialized and um and just what we learn from our childhood experiences really gets ingrained in us over yeah, time. I always hear is that men get promoted on potential and women get promoted based on achievement. 
Yes. And I have a chapter in the women's book about that. Some of it, I think, is our ingrained in us in a way that we present ourselves differently. So I have a chapter about not downplaying yeah. our success because we know we do that, too. If you looked at LinkedIn profiles, two people, a man and a woman who had a similar job experiences over the years, the men play theirs way up and the women play theirs way down. And that's not to say men are right and women are wrong, but I think it's important to recognize this is the world we live in. That man that just had that same job you did for five years is claiming he's an expert and you're claiming you don't really know anything yeah. about it. So it's okay to, to accept compliments from people. It's okay to, to talk about the good things that we've done, our achievements, and to not feel embarrassed or like we're bragging when we do it something great in your life is going on, like it's okay to acknowledge yeah, that. No, that's definitely true. So believing that you can achieve what you want, just need to have the right resources and experience and to learn from the people who've gone before you. Exactly. And we know that even when it comes down to compliments from, from women, when somebody says to us like, hey, I like your shoes. We're really quick to be like, oh, I got these on sale or, or I like your shoes too. Like we just can't say thank you when somebody says something nice to yeah. us. And I think that goes back to childhood and our beliefs about worthiness. Like it's okay. If somebody compliments you, say thank you. But for whatever reason, sometimes it feels like, like we're being a jerk by saying thank you. We try to give credit to other people or we downplay it or minimize ourselves. Just practice that. Say thank you when somebody gives you a compliment going to feel uncomfortable, but just sit with that yeah. discomfort. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so if someone's listening to this, if they feel like maybe they keep failing and making promises that they're not following through on, what are some small things that, that you think they might be able to start shifting today that would help them? So one thing is just the way that you think about stuff going on in your life is to ask yourself, what would I say to a friend who had this problem or a friend who is struggling with this right now? We're way kinder to our friends than we are ourselves, but give yourself that same kind of advice you'd say to somebody else. We know that self-compassion is key to helping us do better and to feel our best. For whatever reason, most of us think that we should you know, yell at ourselves or beat ourselves up like we're this really mean coach, but that none of that's helpful. Self-compassion is really what's helpful to get through life. So I would say that Another one is to just take a break sometimes and acknowledge how you're feeling. There's tons of evidence that just putting a name to your emotion takes a lot of the sting out of it. So when you feel embarrassed or rejected or you feel uh, really sad or anxious, just take a moment and pause and say, how do I feel right now? Put a name to it. Helps your brain and your body make sense of what's going on. And you almost instantly will start to feel just a little bit better just from doing that. And one other interesting one, I think, is for people who worry a lot which we know there's a lot of women, high achieving women who tend to worry about just about everything on the planet. If you worry a lot about things, then schedule time to worry. You just take 15 minutes a day, set it aside to sit down and worry and worry and worry and worry as much as you can in 15 minutes. And it sounds ridiculous, but there's research behind this. And I've done it with plenty of my therapy clients, done it in my own life. But basically, anytime you worry outside of your 15 minutes, you just remind your brain, it's not time to worry yet. I'll worry about that later. And then when your worry time comes around, sit down and worry for 15 minutes and then get up and go do something else to get your mind off of it. It takes about two weeks, but people will come into my therapy office by about the third week. And sometimes they look like the weight of the world has literally been taken off their shoulders where they're like, you know, I was so distracted throughout 
all of my days and when I was doing stuff, I was always worried about what's going to happen next or did I say the right thing yesterday? And I could never concentrate. And I would like, now that I know, hey, I'm going to worry about that later, I can concentrate on what's right in front of me right now. And sometimes people will find that to be one of the most transformational things they could possibly do. That's so interesting. So do you recommend they write it down or they're just like, all right, 7.15 to 7.30, I'm going to worry today? It depends. Some people just sit at the kitchen table and like think. But I've had other people who are like, you know, I'm putting a bullet pointed list of all the things I'm worrying about. And either one seems to work pretty well. Yeah. You know, what's funny. Um, when I was leaving a job at some point, my, I'm a big vision board person and my husband knows me really well. And he put a picture on my bulletin board that said not to spoil the ending for you, but everything's going to be okay. And I just was like, Oh, I kind of needed that, you know? I love that. That's great. Yeah, I used to have what I called a universe jar. And I would write down the big things, the things that I had no idea what would happen. Like I worked in digital marketing, layoffs and reorgs were a constant uh, thing that happened all the time and sort of had you living in this place of fear. And I would write down all my worries and then put them in this mason jar and close it. And the reason I did that was because I had no idea what would happen, but it also helped me come back to it six months later and be like, oh my God, it worked out. Like it was fine. I you know? love that. That's a great idea because so often we kind of forget how far we've come. We don't really look back at, you know, that thing I wanted to do five years ago, I've, I'm actually doing it now because we forget. We get so quickly adjusted to what we're doing now that we forget how cool it yeah, is sometimes. Yeah. Um, Anything else you want to share before before we wrap this up? I would just say, I guess that I think you're stronger than you think. Your brain is a jerk sometimes and it will lie to you. It will tell you you can't do something. It will try to convince you um, otherwise. So I guess my parting exercise that can help would be sometimes to write a list of the top 10 reasons why you should do something like go to the gym or why you shouldn't do something like drink at dinner time and keep that list handy because there are moments when your brain's going to be like, ah, you shouldn't go to the gym today. You're too tired. Take out that list and read the top 10 reasons why you should do it. And you'll talk yourself into it much more often. Or when you're tempted to indulge in something you shouldn't do, you read the list of the top 10 reasons why you shouldn't do it. And you might talk yourself out of doing yeah, it. Yeah. So sort of keeping your why front and center and the reason you're making this decision. Right. Because in those moments where you're tired, you're frustrated, you're having a bad day, your brain will be like, oh, not today. You don't need to do that today. When you read that logical list of reasons, it can help you. Or even when you're in a good mood, your brain's like, oh, you deserve a day off or you deserve to celebrate today. Read the list of why you should stay consistent with, with whatever goal it is you're working on. And it's much easier than to be like, okay, I'm going to talk myself into this and stay on target with what I want to accomplish. Well, so how can people find you, find your books, follow up with you? So my website is the best place. It's Amy Morin, LCSW, as in Licensed Clinical Social Worker, .com. And on there, I have links to, to all of my books, which I have a new book, uh, 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do, is coming out soon. And you can find information about my podcast, which is called Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Addiction impacts all of us. Addiction's consequences run through all of us. 
from ourselves to our loved ones and through our communities, addiction creates so much loss and grief. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm the host of the Addicted Mind podcast, a show featuring personal stories, expert guests, and vital information about addiction and addiction recovery. We'll talk with leading treatment providers to discuss the latest research and treatment options for this devastating disease and advocate for mental health awareness. We discuss topics like the importance of creating a community of support to helping loved ones to some of the latest research on psychedelic medicines. The Addicted Mind podcast has been about creating hope, listening to stories of many amazing people that have overcome addiction and are thriving. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, subscribe to the Addicted Mind podcast wherever you get your podcasts or check out theaddictedmind.com. New episodes every Monday. See you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more.